where do you think, Brendan, the the collapse in knowledge between sort of city and country has occurred? Do you think it's just that cities got so big and so distant from from country and from farming that it just, you know, as decades went by, it just sort of started to forget where stuff came from? Yeah, no, I definitely think that that's, that's a big part of it. I think that there's a few different factors that kind of played into this, but I kind of I've, I've been formulating this theory on how exactly this happened and it's still in the works but I'll, I'll kind of tell you where I'm where I'm heading with it Hello and welcome to Talk Ag to Me, the podcast dedicated to improving ag literacy around the globe. I'm your host, Brandon Black. In today's episode, we're meeting with another uh, consumer that has a ton of questions for us about agriculture, and we're here to answer all of them. So uh, this is Dan. I'm going to let him go ahead and give his own introduction and kind of let us know what he's all about. Go ahead, Dan. Hello there. My name is Dan Hall. I'm in London in the United Kingdom, and I'm a producer and presenter of another podcast called uh, In the Key of Q, which is a musical podcast. Hmm. Awesome. That's, 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 you know, we love having our friends across the pond come on here because it's always interesting hearing, you know, their side of things. I've had some friends on here from the UK, from, you know, from Ireland, from England, from, you know, different parts of, of Europe. It's, it's always really cool hearing, you know, different, especially because, you know, the listeners love, love the accent, obviously, but, you know, you guys have definitely, <laughs> definitely have well, see, different- that's, that's what's good about being British. I can say any old rubbish and it just sounds, you know, <laughs> right. that's right. <laughs> But yeah, no, you guys always have a very different, you know, perspective on things just because of how different our cultures are. So it's always nice to have a little bit of a different, uh, you know, different view of whatever it is I bring to the table. That's excellent to hear. And, and also, there's a definite cultural difference, simply in the fact that I'm a townie. And this is mm. what did interest me in the podcast when you were putting a call out for guests, because I truly have no idea about your world. I have questions <laughs> about it. And I'm curious about it. But it seriously is mud is something that terrifies me you know rain pretty much is something that terrifies me you know <laughs> you can put me in a put me in a, a rough neighborhood or or on a you know on a late night subway train i'm absolutely fine i could fall asleep and i feel like i'm at home but as soon as as soon as i go into any kind of green belt i just you take me too far from the subway station i just get really anxious <laughs> you know what's funny about that i'm the exact opposite actually uh so i grew up you know around dairies and in you know in farmland and then uh, I about about 10 months ago moved to a, you know one of the biggest cities in my state just to go to college and I'm having the biggest shell shock of my life I mean I'm ever since I moved here I've been super anxious I don't I can't deal with the traffic I can't deal with the people it's just been it's very very different every time I go back home to my you know to my farmland I definitely feel a lot more you know comfortable and a lot easier to to relax what is it that you find is most challenging is it that there's just so much stimulus constantly without a break I think so. I think that, you know, growing up where there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of people around, everyone kind of knows everybody, you know, there's not very much traffic, it's very open space. And I can kind of, you know, you can see for a few miles without a building being in the way um, is definitely, you know, that's just, that's just kind of <clears throat> how I perceive the world. And then coming here and seeing all these, you know, there's buildings everywhere, there's people everywhere, like everything is, you know, and like you can 
even in your like immediate neighborhood, you may, you may not know everybody kind of thing is just something that's very foreign to me. And I think that that was kind of like, you know, cause I come from a community where everyone's very welcoming and we all like to hang out and, you know, like, you know, if you, if you know somebody's last name that, you know, every relative they have in the entire city, like kind of thing. So it's just something, you know, coming here is something that's, that's not really the norm. And that's, that's kind of weird for me to adapt to. Doesn't that make it difficult though, at your end though, if you've got, uh, sort of everybody knowing everything had you know on there I to me that's just like oh my god I don't want everyone knowing my <laughs> business I, I want to go to wander around and be super anonymous <laughs> There, there is there, there is an element of that for sure. I mean, I definitely have liked the 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 anonymity of living in the city in the sense that you know nobody's really you know poking over my over my uh, fence to see what I'm doing all the time. You know, everyone kind of just lets me do my own thing, which is nice. But I mean, it's really I don't know. Like where I come from, it's it's we're all just kind of open about everything anyway. Most people are pretty accepting about however you want to live. So it's kind of just you know it's it's not something that I was ever super concerned about. Like, obviously, you know, there's, there's always, especially when you're like, you're in high school, there's always times where it's like, man, I really hope that this family doesn't find out about what I did with, you know, with this person or, you know, it's like that kind of stuff is always kind of there. But for the most part, I mean, like nobody, like they, they may know what you did, but they really don't care. Like, Hey, you do you, man. That's, that's fine. That's your thing. I mean, there has to be a little bit of caring, doesn't there? Because the entire teen movie industry is based on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. That's, that's what Romeo and Juliet was. You know, you've got exactly. to cause some friction. Right. No, exactly. That's and, and you're absolutely right. And but I think part of it too is that, you know, when you're a teen when you're a teen, you just think that everyone cares about everything when really they, they don't like, you know, you just assume like if you do one thing wrong, then the entire world's going to hate you. And it's just because, you know, you're dramatic and don't realize that nobody actually cares what you're doing. <laughs> That's completely true. And certainly it's one of the things that impressed me when I heard your podcast is I was so impressed that somebody of your age, somebody who's kind of young, my, my perception of, of farming and of the farm world is of kind of people of my age. So I'm in my late forties mm. and, and I imagine it being an older person's thing. And of course that's nonsense. And I don't know where that preconception came from because in fact, one of the things I find and interesting about agriculture is the fact that it seems to come with this dichotomy where in my head I'm thinking oh god there's there's lots of sort of mud and and, and just animals shitting everywhere <laughs> um and then at the same time then trying to get my head around thinking oh actually no there's incredible cutting edge technology here there's cutting edge you know amazing gps stuff and and every now and again I hear some stories of some incredible piece of incredibly sexy technology that sort of <laughs> drones scanning over fields and, and working out ears of corn and I just think oh my god that makes my head hurt it's amazing <laughs> yeah no agriculture is definitely a, a paradox in that way you know we, we combine you know the oldest traditions of nature with the newest technologies that some of our most advanced you know, industries aren't even using yet and it's kind of you know it when you start to think about it it kind of blows your mind that you know you're we're still playing in the dirt you know we're, we're still growing food we're still messing around with animals and yes they are still dirty and they are still you know just defecating everywhere but now oh, we sorry, can I, use... used to, I used a bad word i'm sorry I, just, <laughs> no, I, I, I used it with an english accent so yeah, yeah that, that makes it perfectly fine <laughs> but but no you know you're absolutely right like it's very dirty it's very kind of you know for most people it's pretty gross but the thing is everything that comes out of that animal we can turn into something else and so it's yeah. all about you know like like for you know for you you see a cow you know like pooping on 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 you know some ground somewhere and that may look disgusting to you but for a farmer that's manure and we can use the methane to create energy. And so we, you know, some of that technology that we're, that we're being able to, to innovate is something that most people are far from aware of. And to your point, sorry, I don't mean to 
uh, cut you off, but to your point about, you know, farmer, the, the image of the farmer being older is something that's actually not entirely inaccurate. We're having kind of a hard time getting younger people into agriculture right now. Uh, they are starting to get more and more into it, but the average age of the American farmer is about 58 years old and it's getting older. And that's mostly just because, you know, a lot of older generation farmers are, are holding onto their farms because their, their next generation doesn't want to take it over or we don't have enough, enough young people taking over the, the farming side of things. Most of them are going into other aspects of agriculture, like the sciences or the technology or the law or you know, other things that are not farming. Something that we're having, my, my main experience from farming, I, I have two avenues of experience in farming. The one main one is consuming what it produces. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I haven't gone on the scales this morning and seen how heavy <laughs> I've got since COVID. I enjoy consuming quite a lot of what farming produces. <laughs> uh, but, but the other one is I'm a real early starter. Mm. Uh, I love getting up early. And we have a radio show here that the BBC make called Farming Today, which I guess is aimed at farmers because it's just talking about agri-news. It's just a nice 20-minute program that goes out probably just in that really early kind of five, I think it's a 5.30 a.m. slot here. And I mm. love it. I don't understand hardly anything of what's been talked about, <laughs> but it's sort of comforting, mm. you know, and they've been talking in there a lot about these challenges that, that you were just saying there about getting younger people involved, about getting those second generations and saying to them, do you know what? It's not a sense of going backwards you know you can love technology you can love all these things and you can be young and innovative and and want a sort of absorbing existence and do it within farming mm -hmm. yeah and it sounds like this is a you know one of the things they talk about a lot on the on the program and when they go and visit conventions and things mm -hmm. is this conversation of how do we engage younger people in 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 making food and getting into this world and it's something in media that I, I work in media and it's something that we don't face and in a way we almost have the opposite problem that a lot of young people come into media thinking that making it is like watching it mm -hmm. it's like people who work who want to work in bars you know I, I'm sure you have as well worked in my fair share of bars and people <laughs> think that working in a bar is like like being in one right <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing like that at all right <laughs> no i think you're absolutely right there's always this this you know this this strange perceived notion that you know the the way that you work on on any kind of operation is very similar to the way that you would visit it if you were just kind of walking through and that's really not the case the same goes for agriculture you know people come to farms and they're like oh yeah this is super cool it's very relaxing out here i would love to farm and you know just kind of hang out with my cows and and just kind of have a have a nice you know natural uh, lifestyle and while agriculture can be relaxing for for people who who enjoy doing it it's still a very stressful industry you know you're, you're still putting a lot of stress on on a lot of different parts of your life and and especially because agriculture is one of the few industries that really is it's not just your job it is your life everything ties into like mm -hmm. you know there, there aren't very many jobs that you're waking up at four in the morning to go feed and you're going to bed at midnight and then you're doing it all over again and it's like you know 
farming never stops. You might, you might, you might wake up in the middle of the night because one of your cows is calving out and she's having issues, or you might, you know, you might get a freeze overnight and your oranges are going to, are, are going to die. So you have to get, you know, something out there to make sure they don't, they don't freeze to death or, you know, like it's there, there aren't very many industries where that's a common issue. And so people tend to not realize that, you know, yeah, farming is, you know, it's fun and, it, and it's, and it's super relaxing, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. When you're visiting the farm, but when you're working on it, it's a lot more stressful than people tend to put into, you know, put in their minds. And, you know, it's exactly like you said with, with the bar situation or with, you know, anything really. And, and it's, it's funny you bring up the, the idea that a lot of young people are, are going into media thinking that they're going to get, you know, get big just because they see like famous YouTubers or TikTokers or, you know, whatever. And they're like, oh yeah, the, you know, I'm going to go into that. Cause that'll be, you know, I'm going to become famous or whatever. Um, <clears throat> that's really kind of a foreign subject to, uh, those in the agriculture industry, even young people in the agriculture industry, we're having a hard time getting our name out on the media. Like the past maybe five years or so, we've gotten a lot better about it. You know, we, we've really been taking new initiatives and that we've actually, I've been working with a bunch of other agri- agricultural based podcasts that actually just popped up within the past six months. Um, so I started my podcast three years ago. I just celebrated my third anniversary on Monday. Uh, oh, last, happy last anniversary. Monday. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so I, in, in my three years of doing the podcast, when I first started, I saw like a very, very small handful of agri- agriculture based podcasts. And most of them were just kind of like, you know, kind of like your radio show is just updating people on what's going on in the ag world. It's just ag news kind of stuff. It's very, you know, it's very industry based. It's not really consumer friendly. And that was something that I saw an issue with. And so I, I created my podcast around the idea of, of connecting the consumer to the ag world and giving them an idea of, hey, here's how you fit into all of this. And here's, here's why you should care. And then, like I said, within the past, you know, six months to a year, basically around the time all of the uh, all of the shutdown started, I've been seeing a lot more uh, ag based podcasts popping up because a lot of these ag businesses that are, are focusing on their PR and their marketing are finding that they're they're having a hard time, you know, being able to market anything when they're stuck at home, and so they're they're looking towards other routes like podcasting, um, radio broadcasts, um, you know, like new like live streams, new forms of marketing and, and media that promote agricultural education, not just you know information for other agriculturists. And, and so, I think that education is so important because it is one of the things that really frustrates me is when people are incredibly opinionated without knowing stuff. And I put myself in that category. Yep. So it's when I see that trait that I don't like in myself and other people, it really, it really irks me. Mm-hmm. And, and it must be frustrating for you when you get lots of people having opinions on what they think is agriculture, mm-hmm. such as, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're treating these cows terribly and, and we can't do this and we can't eat that. And we can't do this because of the cruelty of it. And, and you sort of think, well, you've read, you know, you've gone on Reddit and you've based that opinion on that, or, you know, or fine, absolutely fine. If people learn their facts and then make their opinions based on that, then that's fine. But it's this formation of opinions on things. And I think agriculture really is, is very much at the forefront of feeling the brunt of this. Mm-hmm people making opinions about stuff that they don't really know a huge amount or they'll say you know well, you can't eat this sort of thing because it's incredibly bad for the environment and i just feel like going yeah so say you who changes your outfit every week right you know clothing is a far bigger polluter than agriculture mm-hmm. you know and so certainly i think the idea of having a podcast that wants to educate people more is curious because both of our podcasts 
are about trying to introduce people to stuff. You know, so mine is about uh, you know trying to introduce a predominantly queer gay audience to, to the queer music that they might not have discovered. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. There's so much information out there now because of digital stuff in the in certainly in the music world that because of Spotify and all these sorts of things, we are overwhelmed with content and we mm-hmm. just don't know where to go to find stuff. And so learning is becoming the, the irony, I think, is that we because we have access to everything, learning is becoming exhausting and paralyzing. Mm-hmm. So what's great about what something that you're doing is you're sort of cutting through a lot of that and just saying, right, there are things to learn here, but here it is in an accessible format. And there's not going to be too much information in each episode. And I'm doing exactly the same thing with my music because creation of information, the only way would have to, to teach people things and to introduce people to things. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I'm actually, I'm going to school to become a teacher. I'm actually learning how to, how to be a teacher right now. And I've, we had, we had to do like, actually, we had to do this assignment called, uh, you know, the teacher philosophy or whatever. We have to kind of explain what we think it means to be a teacher. And I wrote my paper about how, you know, a teacher is not somebody who provides information. It's somebody who guides their students to find it and, and helps them find their best way of finding that information. Because if I just shove information at your face without, without, you know, accommodating your style of learning, it's not going to do you any good. You know, if, if I, yeah. I could just throw a bunch of statistics out there and just have them floating there, you might not absorb any of them because they, you know, you don't care. They don't pertain to you particularly. But now if I say like, hey, you know, agriculture and music actually have very deep roots in history. And I start explaining how agriculture ties into music. Now you're interested because that's something that you have, have an interest in that you understand. And so I, try to make a big goal of the podcast based around accommodating my guests and my audience around finding ways that they can understand agriculture that, like you said, are, are small enough informational bits that they're not overwhelmed, but are also relatable and interesting in a way that's going to keep them actually engaged with the content. And you're not, you know, because I, I, I struggle from the same thing. I love agriculture and I, I've done research and I just fall asleep reading through all those articles just because they're not, you know, they're not engaging. They're not entertaining to me. They're just kind of overload of information. And so I kind of just, I've, I've worked really hard to find a way to, you know, create an approach that's very welcoming to people who are not as, you know, as engaged with agriculture and can find a way to, to really, you know, find the information that they're looking for and, and not be overwhelmed by all the extra. Where do you think, Brendan, the, the collapse in knowledge between sort of city and country has occurred? Do you think it's just that cities got so big and so distant from from country and from farming that it just, you know, as decades went by, it just sort of started to forget where stuff came from. Yeah, no, I definitely think that that's, that's a big part of it. I think that there's a few different factors that kind of played into this, but I kind of, I've, I've been formulating this theory on how exactly this happened and it's still in the works, but I'll, I'll kind of tell you where I'm, where I'm heading with it. So I think that somewhere it was, it was it was mostly in the 1900s where this first started to happen. I mean, there's always been somewhat of a divide between you know those who those who farm and those who produce stuff industrially, um, but especially in the 1900s as urbanization began to first occur, you know, as as we began to see the the creation of suburbs and you know and, and the the actual like image of the city that we know now first started to become a thing. You know, as skyscrapers were built and as neighborhoods began to expand and and more jobs were were being found in the city than than they were on the farmland. 
I think that's where the first division started to occur. And it was just a small division because at, even at that time, most families knew a farmer of some kind, or they even farmed themselves on the side. Uh, most, you know, most people in, in, in the world were connected to agriculture in one way or another. And then as that division began to occur more, you know, as cities began to become bigger and bigger, like you were saying, and as more jobs began to began began to occur in the cities and and not so much in the ag side of things, because agriculture had a lot had a lot slower of an evolution than, than the city life did. Then we saw even more division between the two because the people in the city started to pay less and less attention to what was happening outside the city and just focus on what was happening in the city. And so that created a bit of an educational gap between the two. And then going to the education side of things, schools stopped uh, focusing so much on agricultural education as part of the curriculum. We actually had to have a, a complete act passed back in 1917 uh, called the Smith-Hughes Act that actually allowed for vocational schools to be created that would teach you know subjects like agriculture, like um, you know like handyman work, you know like like outside of school type of uh, type of subjects. And so as that continued, you know, we just saw a bigger and bigger division between city life and country life, just because there really wasn't much of an incentive for those two to, to kind of, you know, to, to collide. Farmers went and did their own thing and didn't really worry about the city. The city went and did their own thing and didn't really worry about the farmers. They just knew that they were getting food from somewhere and that's all they cared about. And then as the internet began to, to, you know, uh, be created and as media began to become more and more popular and we saw this, this massive rise in technology, people started to have questions about agriculture that, that they really couldn't find the answers to because they weren't going to go outside of, their, outside of their city and go ask the farmers. So they started to create their own perceptions on what was actually happening in agriculture. And this was shortly after the Green Revolution, which was the third revolution of agriculture. And that's when uh, like chemical pesticides and fertilizers and that kind of stuff was first introduced. And so this created a massive misconception around the agriculture industry, thinking that they're trying to poison people, they're trying to cause all kinds of environmental damage, that they're you know just out for their own profit, they're not out to actually help anybody. And so as the media began to get to get rolling and become more popular, and as uh, you know, the internet began to expand, people started to find answers where they weren't really coming from the right sources. You know, they, they were hearing these things about agriculture that weren't coming from farmers. They weren't coming from people who worked in agriculture or even around the industry. They were coming from people who had fears around the industry. And so these fears just kind of, you know, harbored this new, you know, this, this newfound misconception or agriculture that is, is that there's them, and then there's us, you know, we're not the same people. We're not all part of the same group. Like we are separate groups entirely and we do not need to, we do not need to talk to them. We don't need to trust them. Well, we'll eat the food that they give us as long as we trust that it's okay. And that's why we're, well, that's why we're going to establish government entities that have to make sure it's all safe. And there was like this massive, you know, distrust between the two communities, even like the, the farming community didn't trust anyone in the city because, they were under the impression that anyone who grew up in the city automatically isn't going to trust them anymore because of what the media did, because of what the internet did for them. And then around, you know, the, the early 2000s, mostly like, like the 2010s and later, um, we started to see a bit more interest in agriculture. People started to kind of find out that, hey, agriculture has a lot of stuff going on. We have all kinds of new technology. It's not just, you know, Farmer John with his overalls and his, and his pitchfork anymore. Like there's all kinds of new innovations in agriculture that's coming out. There's a lot of new technology. There's a lot of new potential for, for, you know, great things to come out of this industry. And not to mention the food that we're eating today has never been safer. It's never been higher quality and there's never been more of it. Like we are doing way better now than we've ever done in the past. And people that are starting to realize that are taking an interest in it. And the people who still are living in those misconceptions are beginning to fear more and more. And so it's kind of, there's there's an exponential rate of 
people who trust agriculture and people who are scared of agriculture. And the problem is neither of them really know what's going on in the industry. And so that's kind of, that's where I think the division first started to come from, but I, I could be wrong. There could be other factors that I'm not, I'm, I'm not taking into account. <clears throat> no, I think that makes absolute sense. And you're, you're completely right about agriculture being increasingly big thing because certainly from the United Kingdom's point of view, sorry, I'm not speaking on behalf of my entire <laughs> no, country, good. but um, from what I can see from my conscious point of view, we have two major sticking points in whatever major trade post-Brexit trade deals we want to make with the United States. The first one is our national health service. Mm. You know, there's lots of private, we, we're aware that there's lots of private health companies in America who want to get into that. And it's just like, no, no one touches that. And the other one is agriculture, because we keep getting this press here that, you know, the Americans want to take over uh, agriculture, either run it from here or just flood the British market with chicken. People are obsessed with chickens being pumped full of chlorine. I still don't and know where that came from. I, I don't know anything about this. Um, no, but I also can't help thinking, I'm, I'm not quite sure why, why a farmer would pump chlorine into a chicken. Um, I really couldn't like, tell you. It's this, exactly. It's all, <laughs> the producer in me just says, doesn't that cost money? Yeah, no, like, it does. You're not going to do, do it for fun because you've got a fetish for the way that bleach smells. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's like, why, why? So there is, a lot of, there is a lot of hysteria around things like that. And I'm sure that there are deeper problems or deeper questions in the and how to integrate uh, American foodstuffs here, or, or I know there's issues with potential the quality of foodstuffs, okay. so, but I don't- on the web for problems, questions in the- <laughs> I'm sorry, my series come later. <laughs> and I'm sure there are valid questions to be had. What frustrates me is that there doesn't seem to be having, there doesn't seem to be a serious conversation about it. There just seems to be lots of hysteria and lots of, complex socio-political agricultural questions being slammed down by just a graphic on instagram mm -hmm. no you're absolutely that, right that's just ridiculous <laughs> you know no discussion no discourse can can be successful like that no you're absolutely right and and that's that's kind of one of the biggest battles that we're fighting right now from the ag media side of things is you know how do we get our image back and it's not to say that you know agriculture is completely not in the wrong like We've, we've been really bad about telling people what's going on. And that's our fault. You know, if I think that if throughout the years, if farmers were a lot more vocal about what's going on in the industry, a lot less misconceptions would be happening. And maybe not, maybe, maybe people in the city would have just, you know, turned, you know, turned, turned away and not even listened to what they're saying, but it became almost like a standard for agriculture to, to remain hush hush about everything they were doing. And I think that that caused a lot more issues than it solved. And, you know, to your, to your point about the chicken, you know, situation, it's funny. Chicken is one of the most controversial industries in all of uh, all, all of agriculture. Poultry is one of the most you know controversial, um, not in agriculture, but you know in terms of how people perceive agriculture. That's one of the ones that they tend to have one of the biggest gripes with is you know oh we stuff chickens for full of hormones or we you know we stuff them full of chlorine or you know we're doing all this weird stuff to make our chickens bigger and that's not natural. Really, none of that's true. Uh, at least in the United States, I'm pretty sure it's the same for for the United Kingdom because you guys are even more regulated than we are. But it's never been legal to pump chickens full of any kind of hormones or, or you know chemicals or anything like that that's not verified by the FDA, and the FDA hasn't verified any of that. And so, 
it's really, it's not realistic to say that kind of stuff, but what has been happening is over the past, you know, century or two, we've been finding ways to selectively breed chickens so that they get bigger at an, ex- at an exponential rate. So now we're finding ways to make chickens really, really big. And like we talked about, there was a brief period of time, actually a, a more than brief period of time where the city side of things didn't really know what was going on in agriculture. So we were making these chickens bigger and nobody saw it happening. And then all of a sudden they see how big these chickens are. And they're like, well, last time we saw them, they were small. It's like, yeah, because last time you saw them, that was 200 years ago. We've grown since then. And so they see the, you know, the jump from small to big and assume we're doing something unnatural. And really it's just that we've been working a lot underground. You guys just haven't seen it. And so that happens with a lot of agriculture. You know, we've been doing a lot of things with a lot of different crops and animals that have drastically changed over the years and people think that it's because we're doing something unnatural and really it's just because we've been working on this for a long time and nobody has seen it happening but it's curious that then isn't it because you don't get people having that argument say about apples right or you know or a tomato right you know, it, it's it's back to that fact you will get people having conversations about apples and tomatoes but the conversations they'll be having are oh these don't taste as nice Right. You know, the, these ones are factory made or something and they're just a bit tasteless and these expensive organic ones they taste lovely and taste like they've delivered straight from you know italy right but but it's curious because you don't get people going i i'm frightened by this tomato or whatever it is because it's suddenly bigger and i think that is to do with the fact that people have an odd relationship with animals mm-hmm. and and breeding or animals and anything happens to them they get they get frightened by the idea of you know, chimeras and, mm-hmm. and and rightly so you know those are weird weird concepts but we we city dwellers and a lot of us and i totally count myself in this i live my life in a bubble of hypocrisy (laughs) and that's not a circle i'm able to square you know i can't i couldn't kill an animal i couldn't touch a dead animal i literally could not i've got a weird as something phobia about it (laughs) i think people have a very different relationship with animals than they do with crops in terms especially in terms of agriculture and farming maybe because animals feel closer to to humanity because mm. they're living I'm, I'm not sure what it is but there does seem to be a slightly hysterical disconnect in the sense of being very reactionary to things and i count myself in being just as bad in that i think that myself and probably a lot of city dwellers are live in a we get full tummers but we get full tummers at the expense of hypocrisy because <laughs> i you know i couldn't kill an animal right. i couldn't touch a dead animal i certainly couldn't process a dead animal i like my but i do like to eat them so i like my dead animals to look like they're straight out of a a cereal packet (laughs) you know as long as there's no face on it and nothing recognizable like a, a foot or an ear then you know you could it's just ridiculous it's and i am embarrassed by that hypocrisy you know i love sausages (laughs) <laughs> and I know that a sausage is likely to be filled with all the things that you can't sell to market if they knew what it was. <laughs> and yet I'm quite happy to, it's just ridiculous. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious as to how you talk about wanting to educate people who don't know about agri, who aren't 
in this world how on earth can you educate or communicate with people who have that who have the kind of mentality that i do who are just like <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous you know it, it that is you know you're, you're making a solid point and you actually brought up some things that i really hadn't considered especially about like the difference in crop and animal concern because when it comes to crops versus animals you know people who worry about crops worry about what that food's going to do to them people who worry about animals worry about how that animal is going to feel when it when it gets done and it's really interesting seeing the, the dichotomy in that and that, you know, they almost don't associate crops with being living things. They just, you know, oh, they're plants. They're not going to feel anything. It's fine. But that but that animal, I don't want that animal to suffer, which I mean, that's that's the whole goal of agriculture is to make sure that nothing suffers. No crops suffer, no animals suffer, no people suffer. And so that's kind of <clears throat> you make a you know, you make, you make a, a good, a good point about people, you know, people have this weird, you know, this weird thing where like, yeah, they'll eat a steak. They don't want to know where it came from, but they'll eat it, you know, but it's, it's, it's just, it's funny because as we have conversations about this kind of stuff, and as I've talked to more people and as, as they've asked me questions, I've begun to kind of see a lot, a lot of where their mind is at with that kind of stuff. And more often than not, they have the same mentality that you do, you know, I'll eat it and I completely support the industry. I just don't want to be the one doing it. And that's perfectly understandable. I mean, I've, I've raised, you know, beef cattle and, you know, for, for the past uh, few years, I actually don't have any right now, but, you know, for, for most of high school and, and a little bit afterwards, I, I worked at, worked with and raised beef cattle. I've, you know, been raised on dairies and I've worked on dairies my whole life. And I've been around, you know, a, a, a large variety of animals and I've, definitely built my emotional connections with a lot of them as you know it's tough you know once they once they go off to slaughter there's definitely some kind of you know there's 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 an emotional pain there but all farmers feel that you know farmers definitely feel you know a relationship with their animals they treat them as if they're family because they are and that's not to say that it's cruel for them to go on and turn them into food because it's it's there's there's an agreement that's had between every animal and and their their handler and that's that look I'm going to give you the best life I possibly can. I'm going to feed you out. I'm going to give you exercise. You're going to have a nice warm bed that you can lay in. You're going to have a fan when it gets too hot. You're going to have misters. You're going to have, you know, the best food, the best water, the best, you know, your diet's going to be better balanced than mine is. You know, everything about your life is going to be amazing. And then once you get to the point where you can't walk anymore, where you're not feeling good, where you're just, you know, you're, you're getting too old. Once you're to a point where you're just not in a healthy state of a state of living where you're, where you're comfortable anymore, I'm going to put you out of your misery. And then all that I ask is that all of the meat that comes from your body goes on to feed people who are hungry. And that's, you know, that's the relationship that we have with animals is that, you know, I can, I will give you a great life if you give the people after you die a great life too. And, and, you know, that exchange tends to go, you know, go very well. Obviously, you know, you can't communicate that to an animal through words and they'll understand, but you can communicate it through actions. If you take care of animals, you can see just based off of their behavior and their physiology that they are very, very satisfied with, with their life. And it's, you know, like you, you hear all the time, people concerned about, you know, animal cruelty and the, and the animals are mistreated in agriculture and that sort of thing. I'm not gonna lie. There are some who, who don't take care of their animals. That's terrible. And we, you know, as soon as we see somebody doing that, we, you know, completely disown them as a farmer. They are not part of our community anymore because we don't tolerate that. But they're going to get punished by more than just the farmers. They're going to get punished by the markets too, because if you stress out an animal, they produce a lot lower quality product. And so, you know, if you're, if you're stressing out your cows, they're not going to produce as much milk. If you're stressing out your chickens, they're not going to produce as many eggs. You're, if you're stressing out your pigs, their meat's going to taste horrible. Like it, there's, there's no, there's no advantage in stressing out animals. And so as we, you know, as we have that conversation with people, they begin to realize, oh, you know, farmers aren't out this, uh, you know, aren't, aren't, are, they're not just out here for a profit. They're out here to make sure that everything that's living on their farm is happy and healthy and has a good life. And, you know, 
the entire purpose is is to make sure that you know not only do they have a good life but they're producing a, a product that, that people can enjoy. And, and, you know, like, so like, just to give you an example, a full grown steer, which I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with cattle terminology, but a steer is a, is a bull who's been castrated. Um, a full grown steer, which gets to about, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, I did not know that's what it was. I'd heard the expression before, but never knew what it meant. Yeah, no, no worries. I mean, people, I actually, I, so I, I've been kind of expanding out my, 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 my market to other, platforms i've been trying out tiktok lately and i did a whole video on on the difference between cows and bulls and steers and heifers and all that kind of stuff that video like blew up i got like um, like like almost two million views on it now it's just what? It's, that's insane right and like i had like you know five views on my videos before that and all of a sudden this one gets you know gets skyrocketing and people are like wow i never knew this this is so interesting like people were showing such an interest in what a steer was so don't feel alone people don't many people don't know what that is <laughs> but um you know no but back to my back to my point you know a steer when we when we slaughter them for market they're they're about a thousand pounds let's say and dressing weighs about 62 percent on those guys so you're getting about 620 640 ish pounds per you know per steer a full-grown steer can feed a family of five for an entire year that's how much meat they produce like they they produce Good so tools. much yeah, it's a lot. So, and and that you know that that just shows the advantage in in you know farming animals is that they can produce a lot more product than a crop can. And so, you know the the you know it goes back to the conversation of we have to make sure that that animal is healthy and happy. That way, all of that meat they produce doesn't go to waste. It goes to somebody who's hungry, who needs it. You know, whose family mm-hmm. is gonna is, is gonna you know be grateful for that meat. And so yeah, there's an emotional connection. Yeah. It's tough to, you know, I've never personally killed any of my animals, but I have walked them to the, you know, to the facility. I have, you know, sent them on the truck. I have, you know, I've done all the things that, that lead up to that. I knew what was going to happen and yeah, I get sad and yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's difficult. My first time sending my steer off to the slaughterhouse, I definitely cried quite a bit, but it was something that as I thought more and more about it, I was like, no, 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 this is the best thing. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it's like when your dog is, is, you know, sick or when your dog is limping and it's not fair to keep them alive. So you put them down. Like, is it, is it hard? Yes, absolutely. But is it better for the animal that way? That is, you know, by far the, the best thing for that, for that animal. You don't want them to suffer. I mean, for those people listening who do have concerns about animal welfare, it sounds like, I mean, one of the problems I think often that people cite about animal welfare and farming from a city perspective is saying, you know, who's managing this, who's keeping this under control. It sounds like from certainly in your experience that there's a lot of peer management of that. Mm -hmm. You know, the market issues come almost further down the line, but actually the much more immediate effect. It sounds like there is a want and a need within the farming community to maintain a good reputation. And if somebody within your fold is running the risk of bringing a bad name to you all, then mm-hmm. there is an element of managing within the system and, and seeking improvement or seeking for it to change or, or, or something. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we all keep each other in check. And especially like, so when I was taking care of livestock back in high school, because we, we did that as part of our agricultural education program, you know, if I saw anyone that was, you know, beating on their steers or they, or they weren't feeding them, you know, for a couple of days, or if they weren't taking them, taking them out for walks because they need exercise, if they weren't, you know, cleaning their pins, or if they were just, you know, overall just being, you know, being rude to them, I would, I would, you know, I would tell them like, Hey, you know, you can't do that to an animal. That's not fair. And, you know, let's just say not just for the animal's sake, but let's just say, if, you know, if somebody who doesn't know walks in here and sees that they're going to assume that all of us are, are animal abusers and that's not going to be a good thing for us. Like it's, it's not just, 
you and your animal. It's the entire industry. All of us rely on that image because if one person messes up and somebody sees it, they're going to assume that all of us are like that and we can't have that happen. And so it's really important that we Mm -hmm. keep each other in check. And again, you know, going back to the animal welfare thing, we don't want to see animals suffer. I mean, I don't know a single farmer who enjoys seeing an animal suffer. We all want to take care of our animals. We all want, want the best for our animals. Like, I know, I know several dairymen who, who almost seem to care more about their cows and their kids. You know, they, they're out there every day with their cows and they feed them in the morning and they're, you know, Hey, hey ladies, how's it going? They'll sit there and talk to their cows all day. Like, you know, those are, that's their family right there. You know, that is, that is their livelihood. Those are their best friends. And like, you know, they get their kids involved in it and their kids start caring about the cows. And, you know, like every dairyman has a kid who, who has a cow, you know, that cow, like, it doesn't matter if it's just a random cow in their herd, that cow is that kid's cow. And so it's like, you know, there's, there's such a level of, of intimacy between, you know, the family and, and the animal that's just not really seen by the public all too often. And I think that that would really help with, with that image if, if that was seen more often. Well, certainly something that's happening here in the UK, which I do think with farming, I've been listening to this Farming Today program on the BBC, on BBC Radio 4. Something that has genuinely impressed me is hearing how farming over the past 10, 15 years in this country has had to hugely expand on what it does. Hmm. That in order for farms to survive, they can't just be doing agri. They can't just be doing animals. They've got to supplement their income by doing educational trips for local schools or having a shop, having a shop that sells honey that's made on site. There's so many branches of of pieces of business i can't imagine how how exhausting that is to do Mm. and this sort of expansion is something which had never occurred to me that farmers would have to do Mm -hmm. you know that that the running because of whatever reason because supermarkets are driving down prices or whatever it is that suddenly a dairy herd is no longer profitable right it can't, you know, in this sense, like you said, if if, you, if one wants an example of the loyalty of, of farmers towards animals, and, I, and I'm always a little bit worried that I might have dreamt this because I'm drifting in and out of sleep <laughs> listening to farming today, but there is the sense amongst a lot of the farmers that they're branching out in order to keep their farms afloat and keep mm-hmm. their herds until prices improve. Yep. And then hopefully, you know, if these supplementary businesses are still great, then they'll have enough money, they can get other people to run them. Right. But actually, the immediate desire is not obviously it's fantastic and it's great to bring in local schools and educate them about farming. But the but the revenue that that brings in, gosh, it sounds like it's really needed sometimes. <laughs> no, it absolutely is. Diversified agriculture is becoming more and more popular, and not just because you know people want to diversify and grow different things. It's because they almost have to just to be able to stay relevant. Uh, that's actually a common problem happening in my hometown. Um, you know, we we're you know we're the dairy capital of the United States. You know, we we grow we we re- we raise more dairy than most other places in 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 the country. And yet, what's your hometown, Brendan? It's uh, Tulare, California. Okay. And we, and yet we are having to tear down dairies and plant trees, or we're having to you know like rip out cornfields and plant something that's you know like cotton or you know. Uh, pistachios you know something that's a bit more profitable for that for that site you know for that for that market at that time you know for a long time back in like the early you know when 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 Tulare was first founded you know in like all the way through the early 1900s cotton was a very common crop grown in Tulare and then you almost didn't see it for like decades there was no cotton because it wasn't profitable the cotton market was so terrible in, in in California that we just couldn't there was no point in it and then 
recently, actually like very recently within like the past like 10 years, cotton all of a sudden saw this rise. It, it just bounced back up into the markets and now cotton's, you know, growing and growing its flurry again. And it ha that hasn't been seen in like a long, long time. And so it's like, you know, the, the fluctuation of the markets is something that impacts agriculture more than again, most other industries. You know, this is something that like how, how many people, you know, how, like how many uh, like uh, car manufacturers see the markets and say, oh yeah, they're, you know, people are buying more trucks. So we're going to start building more trucks, but only this type of truck and only, you know, only this, you know, this, like there's, there's some fluctuation of the market that impacts some other industries, but agriculture definitely like the market runs agriculture. You know, you, you can't, you know, yeah. like, let's just say I wanted to grow oranges, but the price of oranges is the lowest it's ever been. There's no reason for me to grow oranges, no matter how badly I want to, that's going to be a bad idea for, for me and my family. And so it's, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to have those conversations with people. You know, why the people always ask like, why, you know, why are you guys tearing down all this stuff just to grow the, you know, a different crop? It's like, because if we don't, we might lose everything. You know, we have to, we have to, we have to play the game that the market is telling us to play or else we don't get to play anymore. Yeah. Cause you're a business. Why should right. you continue to grow a, a crop that's, that's no use. And, and it's not, I imagine an easy thing either. Uh, what little I know of, of agriculture is you can't suddenly just go, Oh, I'm growing beets in this field. Oh, next year, I think I might want to grow something completely different because that something completely different might require different equipment mm -hmm. would, would have completely different needs. It might be that it's, uh ripening uh at a time where it puts it in direct conflict with a whole lot of stuff you've got going mm -hmm. somewhere else and there simply isn't the space to manage two sets of things ripening at the same time so it's gonna this is where for me a lot of the agri thing gets really gets very interesting because i realize quite how much of it in a strange way is like television production mm. Because so much of TV production, be it dealing with difficult actors or voiceover people or camera people or directors, or it's all about timing and management of timing. And if everybody wants everything at once, it can't get done. Right. Yeah, if the TV right. channel wants the program at the same time as the script editor wants to do this, it's all, if you can get things stepped, it all works. Mm -hmm. And things can't move incredibly quickly because the affecting of one thing has a complete knock-on effect on other things and when i think about agriculture i think of it in exactly the same way it's not just a load of people turning up and throwing some seeds on the field and then coming back five months later right that there is a you know and i do think that in terms of the messaging for the agri world to the city world for people like me i think is to say things like we don't just hurl things onto fields and go away mm -hmm. and come back when it's ready. There is there is a sense of constant management and a constant scientific management. Mm -hmm. There's, I think because we, we live in cities so distant from, from mud and things like that. And all these things that terrify me <laughs> that we, we kind of confuse mud with low tech. Mm hmm there's there's this mismatch perception uh and i would i would wonder whether a lot of the education can come by really shouting about the tech that exists within that space right no and, the and robots or the you know anything like that yeah that and that's actually been where i've found the most um you know the most success in in educating people is about you know the technology side of things my 
my first episode of my second season was my first approach at talking to non-agriculture people because my first season was all just ag people. I was just talking to people in my local community just to kind of get some information rolling and to kind of get, you know, get, you know, get an idea of how I wanted to, to interview people. My second season was all about interviewing people, you know, like you that they don't really have much interaction with agriculture. And my first episode of that, I mentioned that we use robots in agriculture. And my guest was like, wait, 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 hold up. You say robots. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, we need to dive into that. And we did a whole second part on just robots and agriculture. And so, and like, you know, I mentioned that we use drones and we use, you know, uh, artificial intelligence. And we use technology like precision agriculture that's based around like, you know, we can send a drone over a field and it can scan the field and tell you exactly where all the bugs are at, exactly where there's low moisture, where the nutrient content in the soil is the highest. Like it can you see that you blows that. my mind. That absolutely right. blows my mind. That's, I got this <laughs> image of you like you're in. I'm showing my age now, but image like you're in the Matrix mm. and you're sitting at home and you've got all this <laughs> all these green screens coming up virtually in front of you, showing all your fields and you're moving things. And <laughs> right. No, exactly. It's, you know, as, as much as agriculture is still, you know, like the naturalist mindset, like we still have to work with nature. We're still working with the environment. These are still living things that we're taking care of. We've adapted our technology so heavily that it's like, and the, the other thing about that too is, you know, it, it's not that we've adapted technology so we don't have to do as much. It's that we adapt, we adapted technology so we can focus on other things at the same time. And so because yeah. with agriculture, you know, like with, with like with most, with most businesses, you never run out of things to do. Like there's always something else that needs to be done. And so it's, you know, with agriculture, let's just say that we, we get drones that can now scan the, the fields. Now we don't have to do soil samples so we can go focus on something else. Or let's just say we have automatic yeah. feeders that can go out and feed the cows. Okay, well, that's one less thing we have to focus on. Now we can focus on rebuilding that barn that just got tore down. Or, you know, now uh, we have technology that can go and pick all of our food for us. Or like, you know, let's just say it has to go harvest a field or it has to go, you know, uh, water or plant or, you know, it has to do something. That just takes away one less thing that farmer has to worry about that day. And, but yeah. that doesn't, that doesn't mean that the farmer now doesn't have to do that. It's that now he can go do something else that he's been stressing out about. Brendan, I never understood this idea that there was floating around in the 1950s. I think in both our countries, when we could see technology coming down the line, it, there was this idea that somehow once technology arrived in its modern state both in the home and in the office we'd only be working two days a week and we'd be just lounging around our homes and robots would be vacuuming it's like no <laughs> when you get technology all that it does is it makes up it makes space to do more work it, right it's like no one ever said oh i've got this new thing called email i only have to go to work two days a week now <laughs> right no that's and that's exactly how it is you know and i've heard some people like think that way it's like oh you know farmers got somebody to go pick their fruit for them so you know there's been that way they can just sit around it's like no 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 no. they have a million and one other things on their list it's just that now they can go do those things uh, you know it's like if if you know the if the if they don't have to worry about the field getting picked then they can go focus on you know getting the getting the other field ready for the for the next harvest or they can go focus on making sure that their bank you know their their bank statements are, are in place or they can go focus on making sure that you know their that their cows are fed for the day or you know like there's always something else that needs their attention it's not just and and even you know just because we have something that can do it automatically now doesn't mean that the farmer doesn't pay attention to it. You know, if, if, you know, if we have a robot out there picking fruit, the farmer's watching that robot to make sure he does it correctly. Cause if he doesn't, then we're going to have to change something about the system because, yeah. you know, e even technology can make errors at times. And there's always adjustments that need to be made per field because we're dealing with the environment. You know, things are never the same. You know, there's always going to be some, some change here and there. There's always gonna be some variation. You see, this is why I think 
it terrifies me. My nature terrifies me because I like <laughs> I like I like order and I like templates and I just like I'd be the worst farmer. I have actually got a question. Okay. Which which I'm not embarrassed to ask because you did you did tell me not to be ashamed of, of ignorance. Yeah. Um there's a product that I absolutely love, and that is sweet corn. I mm-hmm. I love sweet corn. I love frozen sweet corn and it's probably the best the unless we get fresh cobs frozen sweet corn is the way that we mostly get it in this country Mm -hmm. and it's not expensive this stuff is not expensive and it's just a joy Mm -hmm. which is great for me but what i don't know is how does it how does it get like that because (laughs) if if it's not expensive it must be easy to process Mm -hmm. but how on earth do you get a cob and you get all the bits off it without breaking them and without getting all the little bits of fiber and horrible stuff? So I've got no idea how that happens. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's an excellent question. And so you're absolutely right. Corn is actually one of the cheapest crops to produce because corn is immortal. I mean, it's very hard to kill corn. It, it can, it's very resistant to a lot of things. And about 98% of corn is genetically modified, which makes it even more resistant to all those things. And so corn can, can survive a lot and it can survive in a lot of different types of climates and areas too. So it's grown pretty much everywhere. Like in the United States, it's grown in every single state, every great, every state grows corn somewhere. And so. And all the states have very different climates, don't they? Right. Yes, exactly. And, and the thing is, Corn, yeah, corn can adapt to different soil textures or different soil compositions, different nutrient components, all, all that different stuff. There was actually, there was a point in time where the government had to pay farmers to not grow anything for a season because we had so much corn that we did not know what to do with all of this. Send it to my house. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So like farmers were literally being paid to sit around because they literally could not afford like the market could not afford to sustain that much more corn like we were flooding the market so badly that there was just too much corn it was going to waste and so we had to stop producing it because it's so easy to produce like everyone like almost like the knee-jerk reaction is if you don't know what to grow grow corn because it'll grow and so that that kind of answers the question as to why it's cheap is just because it's everywhere like the the corn the corn market is so saturated that it's just it's you know is in the ground basically you'll you'll Corn will never be expensive as far as I can tell. I mean, maybe like super fancy, you know, weird corn that's grown somewhere else, but like sweet corn, sweet corn, you're, you're, you're always gonna be able to get it for cheap. Um, that's good news. Well, for <laughs> <right>. me anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the processing of it is actually really interesting because like with most foods, there's a quality assurance aspect of processing corn. And so, you know, like, let's just say, let's just take oranges, for example, you know, let's just say they're sorting through a big, a big bin of oranges the reason you find oranges in the store that very rarely have any kind of marks or scratches or bruises on them is because they toss out all the ones to do, you know, they go through the bin and they find anything that they don't think the consumer is going to buy and they toss it out. And it may not be that food's bad. This is actually something that I'm trying to work on right now is trying to get people more aware of the idea of just because something looks ugly, doesn't mean it tastes bad or that's bad for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like we're like doing orange, a similar thing here. Right. Yeah. And so like, like an orange with a big old scar on it, may not be that bad because it's got that rind around it that's protecting the actual fruit as long as there's nothing puncturing the fruit on the inside then you're good you can eat that fruit and so it's like you know it's the same thing with corn but we are a very cosmetic based you know uh, we're a very cosmetic based population where everything we eat everything we own everything it has to look pretty you know everything has to look nice it has to look it it can't have any damage it can't look like it's gonna be it's gonna taste weird like it has to be perfect and so 
when we are processing corn, as, as we're kind of shedding off the, the kernels, any kernels that we don't think look quite market ready, we just toss. And so every kernel you get is perfect. It's all plump and nice looking and it's all fancy. And, and then they, you know, they process it all and they package it and then they send it off to your house. And that's, so really that's kind of the, you know, that's the reason that it all looks nice and it's still cheap and affordable and all kinds of stuff, just because our quality assurance is so specific and our food safety regulations are very, very hard too. And so a lot of that kind of ties into making sure the product is as nice as possible and as healthy and safe as possible for our consumers. But how is that processing done? Is it sort of put on a vibrating plate or something and all the things that are too small for the consumer just sort of fall through a gap? And and I guess you turn that into something else, like cornbread or something like that. You just mash it. But is it, it's not done manually, is it? Uh, I don't. So, <laughs> um, so I don't actually know how the kernels themselves are, are plucked off of the cob. Let me look it up for you real quick. Um, but I do know that any corn that's not uh like any like you said any kernels that don't make the cut they go into something else either they're made into cornmeal or they're left over and turned into animal feed or they're just kind of set into like a different you know a different mm -hmm. industry because the big thing with agriculture is we don't waste anything like we we try our absolute hardest to not waste anything even like the oranges that that you know are, are ugly that aren't gonna go to consumers they go to cow feed or they go you know they go they go into orange juice or you know they go into something that's not oranges like it's there's always something that's that's um you know there's always a place for everything even like with you know if we butcher an animal all of the meat goes somewhere even like the tongue goes to different countries the tail goes to a different country the hooves and bones go into dog bones you know everything goes somewhere mm. um let me see the next okay Wait, and just no. while you're looking that up there's a there's a huge problem ultimately isn't there and that your your city consumers or all your consumers expect a consistency of quality and a consistency of look and the very nature of nature is that it's not consistent mm -hmm. so you're always trying to get a square peg in a round hole a little bit by the end consumer thinking that nature just goes boom 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 and cookie cuts right. everything whereas of course in order to give that impression you've got to have so much wastage which right. you then go well it can't be wastage you've got to do something else with it Right. No, exactly. And that's, you know, that's exactly how it is, is, you know, just because we're dealing with, with the inconsistency of nature, we can't guarantee a, a perfect product every time. So we've had to get creative with where we're going to send that, that leftover product. All the byproducts go somewhere. And there's actually been a surprising amount of industries created just through byproducts. I mean, like, wow. I, I, I bet this is, this is actually something that surprised me when I found out a lot of like computer chips and like different, you know, like plastics that are used for technology are made from like animal fats and stuff. No. Yeah. It's like a lot of like plastics, a lot of weird, like, you know, like, yeah, animal, you know, animal fats go into a ton of different things because, you know, they're very easy, you know, easily saturated into, into um, like plasticky materials and like skin is used for a lot of like, uh, like animal skins, especially like horse skins is used for like glue and stuff. You know, there's a lot of different byproducts that, you know, well, we don't want to waste it. So we're, let's, let's find something to do with it. And so like we do all kinds of experiments to see like, okay, well, if we, if we do this to it, what, what changes about it? And then we find new ways that we can, we can manipulate different byproducts into doing different things for us. Wow. So, I did find your corn, your corn answer. So Brilliant. it looks, it looks like whenever they, excuse me, whenever they put the the cob through the through the um the processing plant, excuse me, ding, when they, whenever they put it through the processing plant, they have these spinning blades that the corn basically gets shot through, and then as as it goes through the as it goes through the blades, the 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 cob basically like it, it's almost like I'm imagining kind of like um not like a grinder, but kind of like it's. I don't know how, how quite to describe it, but like, you know, as it's going through the blades, basically the blades are, are very, you know, 
they're just light enough to, to knock the kernels off without damaging the kernels or the cob. But they, it's kind of like, you know, you're like, you're just pushing the corn through and it's just like, you know, spinning it. It's just like knocking them off into like this big old pan. And then the pan, like, you know, sifts through all the, all the, all the ones that are too small or not the right shape or the right size. And the rest of them get sorted out into the bin. And that's basically how that, how they separate them from what I can understand. See, that's fascinating. There's something wonderful about factories and machines doing that kind of work. We used to have a kids program when I was young on the BBC called Play School. And at the end of each episode, they would go and visit a factory. Mm. And it was amazing just watching these machines doing these things. And, and there was a fantastic TV show made in your country called Twin Peaks. And mm. that had an opening t opening title sequence that not only had beautiful music, but it was just a sawmill. <laughs> and that's all it was, was just these static shots of these sawmill machines repeating a movement. And it's hypnotic. It's beautiful. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah. No, I, I've, so I haven't visited a ton of processing plants, but I've been to citrus processing, uh, like pomegranate processing, uh, cottons, uh, cotton seed uh, processing. Cotton is really interesting to watch. They have like this whole machine that separates the the seed and all of the trash, which like leaves and sticks and stuff from from the cotton. And then they they you know they have they have machines that actually like, separate the cotton out by fibers, and then they they spin it all into like different types. Of, it's it's really it's like almost like spiderweb kind of looking silk, and they 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 do all this weird stuff with it. It turns it into like the fiber that we use to make clothes and other products. And then all the seeds get kicked out somewhere else, and they have this massive pile of seeds in the back of the operation and all the seeds go back into animal feed and so and all, all the trash gets, the, wow. gets put in something like everything you know seeing the entire process is really really cool and like um there's a part of the process where they let you kind of you know there's there's like this machine and you can't really see what's happening but um you just like this little window and it's almost like popcorn you just see cotton seeds popping up and you know up and down and it's because underneath it they have a machine that's that's separating the the seed from the from the cotton and it's heating it up and it's popping out and so as as they're doing you see like the the, the seeds popping you can actually stick your hand in there and catch a hot seed and it's really really cool and i i got to do that when i when i went and visited it was it was really interesting you see this is where farming we need to have YouTube channels and maybe there already <laughs> are YouTube channels that show this kind of stuff in action, because it is always fascinating when machines, when huge, bulky, loud things are doing something which seems incredibly intricate and, right. and delicate. Right. You no, know, it's, it's always just like, you know, how come it doesn't just break everything? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. The machine's but, so loud and it's shaking and it's doing all kinds of weird things. And all of a sudden we have this nice, delicate little product come out of it. It's like, how in the heck did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> totally completely uh, and something something that just sprung into my mind thinking about city and countryside uh it's a bit of a jump in my mind process but that i've noticed increasingly in in certainly in london and i'm sure in cities all over the world but in london there has been over the past decade a slight sort of almost like a kind of fetishization of farming mm -hmm. and i think that's grown up in the sense of farmers markets coming up and so by fetishization i i don't i don't mean a sexual fetishization right. i mean a sort of sense of we're bringing you know we're we're just in love with things that are farmy and things mm -hmm. that feel genuine and so the the upshot of that here in london is we've had things like distilleries hugely popping up everywhere mm. they're all over london in the weirdest of places 
um, right in the center of town. You know, there, there's gin distilleries, beer distilleries, all tiny micro, and it's sort of a thing. And and certainly near me is, I think, one of the most innovative and and wonderful hybrids of of city and farming. And it's a place called Growing Underground, mm. uh, which is, of course, a, a perfect pun from uh, the song Going Underground, which right. was. Uh, I can't remember who sang that, but they were. That's gonna. My London credentials will be ripped from me for not remembering <laughs> who sang it. Was it the Stranglers? Um. Anyway, it was the Jam. That was it. The Jam sang it. Mm. And but growing underground is a, uh, I think mushrooms. They grow mushrooms and they grow herbs and salads and they grow them in old subway tunnels underneath oh. London and underneath where I live now. Wow. So a whole. Sh- the whole stretch of the subway tunnel they're grown in old um war shelters world war ii shelters and it's incredible and oh, i yeah. just love that sense of the cities are starting to fall in love again with with farming they're starting to fall in love with bread that is milled you know i've got london's only surviving i think windmill really near where i live and it huh. they mill flour <laughs> and they deliver it to the nearby prison Mm-hmm. And the prison makes breads that they then sell back. And people are starting to want to feel that rhythm of yeah. food production. And I think that's something that you can really jump on in terms of starting to rebuild the relationship and the communication between city and and country. Because I think that city people are, are, are genuinely wanting to know for health reasons more where their food comes from. But also just the joy of seeing this stuff, the joy of seeing it being made, the joy of knowing the people that have grown it. And so I I think that there's a real readiness now to rebuild that relationship. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And and it's it's really funny because growing up, I was always kind of under the impression that anyone who didn't grow up in agriculture automatically isn't going to support it or, or be interested in it or you know even be against it in some cases. And I've kind of been, you know, I, I've, I've had my perspective on that changed, you know, through doing the podcast, I've learned that there's this fascination with agriculture, even if, you know, even if people don't want to actively be involved in it, but they have this, this totally. interest in it. And, and that was such, you know, that was such a big mind blow, you know, for me, because I was, you know, growing up thinking like, oh man, people don't like agriculture. Like this is going to be really hard to do a podcast about it because people aren't going to want to listen to it. They're not going to be interested in it, but I've been very surprised to find that, people have had a significant amount of interest in, in not just agriculture, but what I talk about, you know, relating agriculture to everyday life, you know, finding ways that agriculture is kind of tied yeah. into everything around us, like movies and music and, you know, everything is, is agriculture. And, you know, like not just on, in, in the literal sense in, in, you know, in the terms of everything around you is came from agriculture. Like, you know, the, my wooden desk came from agriculture because wood is, you know, it is come, it comes from trees and trees are, are, you know, harvested through the lumber industry or, you know, like my microphone is made of metal and that was mined and mining is considered agriculture. You know, like it's not just in the literal sense. It's, it's also in, in the figurative sense of everything that we understand as a society was founded by agriculture, you know, because society was founded by agriculture. That was, that was the first civilization was the farm was the first ever farm. And, you know, having that, that understanding of it has, has kind of proven to me that, you know, people have a lot more interest in this than I initially gave them credit for. And that's really been my advantage in, in, in running the podcast is that, you know, if I could find something that somebody wants to talk about, then I can get, I can get them on board with agriculture really quickly. And, 
so far, I haven't really had any bad luck with that. You know, people have been very, you know, very passionate about their ideas of what they think agriculture is. And they've been very passionate about learning how, how wrong they are, or sometimes how right they are. And I haven't really, I haven't really found very many people who have been actively opposed to agriculture or opposed to anything I've said. And the ones that are, are just, you know, they're the kind of people that just like to start trouble. They're not really serious about what they're about their beliefs or not. They don't really want to fight about it. They just want to say something and then run away kind of situation. Yeah. And I think that there is that argument or I think that that process that you have of getting people into agriculture by showing it to be connected with lots of other things is a great way of doing it because so often people won't be interested in things if they don't feel that they're relevant to them or they're relevant to any of their life experiences. So doing something like that and saying, oh, no, actually it is connected with your life is, mm-hmm. is fantastic. You know, I, I love science fiction. I love science fiction as a genre. I love science fiction books and TV shows and everything. And the best science fiction stories are always based on agriculture. Yep. They are always, you know, there is the the science fiction I particularly like is a very kind of gentle, very British science fiction. An author called John Wyndham is one of the best ones where sort of things happen in villages. They don't happen in Los Angeles or in London. They just, they're quiet they're quite weird things that happen in sort of Miss Marple, Agatha Christie villages. Right. And there is a brilliant book called that is set that is like that. It's that kind of quiet English world. And there's a book by an author called John Christopher called The Death of Grass. Hmm. And all it is, is it's just about, for some reason, it's not through any aliens or anything, no weird things from a foreign country, just a virus or a bug or something just kills off grass. Hmm. And then it's about the subsequent effect of the collapse of the food chain. Interesting. And how and how that leads to the complete collapse of society. Wow. That sounds really interesting. Um yeah, and it's it's I mean it's an easy book to read. It's quite it's quite small, but it's in, it's the last book that I read where it was like four in the morning <laughs> and I had to get up for work, but I was like, I'm not gonna go to bed. I want to read it. <laughs> but it's a, I think that's a great a great novel to push people towards it's very entertaining it's not too long but it's who would have thought you know that a genre like that would be so plugged into agriculture right you know and even there was there's a brilliant bbc series in the 70s called survivors which is very pertinent to now it's all about a virus wiping out almost everybody Mm. and uh there's an amazing scene in the first episode where everyone's died and there's few survivors and they're starting to run into each other and clump up again. And the heroine meets up with the teacher from her son's school. She's gone to try to look for her son who's in boarding school and he's an old chap and he's, and he says, you know, we've, we've got to learn. We've got to learn from the beginning. And she says, Oh, she says, everyone's dead. You know, <laughs> there's plenty of fuel around. There's plenty of food in tins. And he says, but what happens when that runs out? And he has this brilliant speech where he just says, look at, I think he says, you know, look at that candle. Hmm. Something as simple as a candle. Would you know how to make that from first principles? Do you know how to get the wax? Do you know how to fell the tree do you know how to make the make the wick do you know and he's like we've got to learn these fundamental agri skills Mm -hmm. which we do not have he said you know if you can't make something as simple as a candle or as simple as a table and he just says you know modern man is he says we are less 
able to survive than Stone Age Man making crude tools out of flint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and true. all the things that all the things that he talks about are all agricultural. They're about how do you how do you get iron? How do you get tin? How do you grow vegetables? You know, it's this incredible thing, and it really makes you realize how these industries and how things like the agri industries. And I didn't know, in fact, that mining was included in that. Mm -hmm. That they're just the backbone of everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's a, that's you know that's kind of the essential point that I'm always trying to to get across is like I'm not trying to say like oh you should support agriculture because it's the best ever. It's like no 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 agriculture is the most essential of all of them it's it's you know it's not that i think you should support it because it's a great industry it's that if we don't have that society cannot thrive because we we have to have a source of food we have to have a source of clothing we have to have a source of minerals we have to have you know some kind of of infrastructure based around being able to harvest natural resources and turn them into useful products that we're able to use and unless everyone figures out how to grow their own food, we need somebody to be able to do that for us. And, totally. you know, and, and re really, it's not really an option for everyone to grow their own food anymore. That's not something that's, that's completely realistic because of how much urbanization that we've had. Like if, if we were to tear down every city that we have right now and go back to farmland, it would take about 500 years for that to be able to happen. And the reason for that wow. is because topsoil. So, you know, like if, if you, if you wanted to, if you wanted to farm, you have to have proper soil. Soil is the most important part of me being, being able to make any kind of, of farm work. And which is it's slightly different for, for animal operations, but they still need feed. You know, if, if you're going to try to grow feed for them, you still need soil. Soil is very, very sensitive and it's easily manipulated and, and it's easily changed. And if you, if you change it in just the wrong ways and, and you can't, you know, to a point where it can't grow anything anymore, it takes a while for it to be able to, to grow things again, because really what makes soil viable is that there's a bunch of microbiomes, there's a bunch of microorganisms, there's a bunch of, you know, things underneath that we're not seeing that are causing a ton of things to happen with our crops that make them productive, that make them taste good, that make them you know healthy for you. And if we don't focus on that, if we kill off our soil, then we're kind of killing off our, our only our only food source because we can't just grow crops anywhere. You can only grow them in places where the soil is rich enough to actually harbor crops. And that's why we can't just, you know, grow corn or well, corn probably can grow anywhere. <laughs> like, but you can't just grow, you know, like strawberries in, you know, in the middle of, of Alaska because they don't survive in the cold very well. And the soil might not be their nutrient composition. So what happens with what happens with the dust bowl? Because we sort of hear about this legendary thing that happened in America. Mm -hmm. What was that? Was that the collapse of the soil system? Yes. So we we had drained our soil so much. It's called leaching. So leaching is, is a is a common mistake that happens in soil that we're getting a lot better about. But it happens so like let's just say I have, you know, if I if I put corn on a on a on a plot of land and corn, you know, sucks up a lot of nitrogen, for example, and then I, you know, take take the corn out, I harvest it, and then the next crop I put in there is something else that takes more nitrogen, then that soil is going to run out of nitrogen, and it's going to dry up, and it's not gonna be able to produce anymore. And so as we leach, as we take all the nutrients and all the water out of the soil, it becomes so dry and dusty, that eventually all the erosion that happens from the wind can create massive dust storms that are really, really dangerous. And that's what the dust bowl was. It was literally, we drained so much of our soil that we turned it into just dust and, and the wind and the storms just devastated all of the farms because of the amount of dust and, and, and just, you know, dried out land that there was left over. And that's, and how do you realized. fix that? 
really it's it's difficult to do it, it has it has to do with a lot of of you know soil care and, and just not touching the soil in terms of you know we don't grow anything on it or we find ways to put to put nutrients back in the soil and so it's it's a lot easier to prevent than it is to fix it's not something that if you know if, if we do it then it's, it's easy to, to undo it's it kind of takes a while but there are preventative measures that become a lot easier to manage and that's like using cover crops or using you know uh, so like let's just say i'm back to my original example with corn if corn sucks all the nitrogen out of the soil and i I harvest it before i put the next crop in there i'm going to want to put something that's called a buffer or a cover crop in between and that might be legumes it might be you know some kind of genetically modified clover you know something that can take nitrogen out of the air and put it back in the soil and try to revitalize some of the soil and some of the nitrogen that was lost and try to try to keep the soil healthy into the state that it was because the idea behind agriculture is that we either leave the environment as good as it was when we got there, or we make it better. We try to do yeah. our best to, to not hurt the environment because, you know, contrary to popular belief, if we hurt the, you know, people think that agriculture is out to kill the environment. If we kill the environment, it's going to kill us because we rely on the environment for our food to grow. And if, if we're out there killing the soil, if we're out there killing the water, then that's going to destroy every chance we have of growing our food anymore. So we have to make sure that we're putting as much, if not more back into the soil that we're taking out. And so that was a mistake that early farmers didn't really realize. And so as industrial agriculture began to evolve, we kind of screwed ourselves with, you know, with leaching a lot. And that kind of, you know, put us in, in a very, very deep place of not being able to do anything with our agricultural land for a while until we figured out how to revitalize the land. Problem is with our current technology, we can't revitalize land that's been killed by urbanization. So anything that, it, that a building stands on right now, if we knock down the building and try to use that land, it would take anywhere from 300 to 500 years for that soil to regenerate good lord yeah so we really don't have I an option not know that. <laughs> yeah so the more the more cities we build the more urbanization that we allow the more farmland that we take out the more we're limiting ourselves. it's almost like let's just say you have a you have a, a five gallon bucket full of water well if you take out you know two 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 of the gallons of water and then you cut off the top of the bucket it can only hold three gallons of water now and and it's not gonna be able to hold that five gallons anymore yeah and so as we take out farmland, if we build, if we build, you know, settlements on it, if we, you know, do things to the soil that are not going to allow it to regenerate, we're not going to be able to use that farmland for, for centuries. And so we really need to be careful with how we're utilizing farmland and how much of it we're allowing to go away. Because if we're not careful, I'm sure you've seen the movie Wally. That's kind of where we're heading. Yeah, I'm all for brownfield development because my city is filled with wonderful buildings and wonderful spaces, mm-hmm. especially from the industrial revolution that are just sitting dead. And, you know, I, yeah, absolutely. Let's, <laughs> let's brownfield development rather than building on, on fields and stuff. <laughs> right. No, I'm, I'm, and no, I'm, Brendan, for... I'm going to need to dash in a second. So I've got, I've got to go for dinner. Do you want to wrap okay. up? later do you want me to call back in later rather than us rush this what would be best for you no i mean i was i was kind of at you know i think that was a healthy stopping point for the conversation i was just going to close on you know cool. I, I don't think that we really need to like i don't think urbanization is a bad thing as long as it's you know as long as it's controlled and as long as we're aware of what we're doing absolutely yeah as with i suppose most things in life but uh yeah let's um yeah let's not build on on fields and stuff because even though <laughs> fields terrify me and <laughs> Being far from subway stations terrifies me. I do at least have the intelligence to <laughs> realize <laughs> that I do need it if I want to carry on eating my huge amounts of corn on the cob. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. But no, I think that was a healthy stopping point. You know, I, I I think that that's unless you had any other questions or anything else you wanted to cover in a future episode. 
No, that that was great for now. But to be honest, I'm sure I will think of things because I'm <laughs> I'm now going to go for some dinner and I'll chat to chat to my friends about this and uh and uh, undoubtedly they'll come up with questions because I think they're all urban boys as well. So awesome, send them over. I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to answer any question. I, my policy: there's no such thing as a dumb question. That and you really made me feel that. So thank you very much. I felt very comfortable asking questions, which must have seemed embarrassingly basic to you. <laughs> no, it's it's like I said, I'm, it's, it's to a point now where I'm I'm embracing those questions. So I'm I'm glad that you're you're comfortable enough to ask them. So awesome though i think that i think that was a good wrapping up point um before we close out i would like to give you the chance to plug all of your podcast stuff and kind of remind people where they can find you if you would like thank you very much brendan yeah so you can find my podcast in the key of q which is at in the key of q.com and of course it's on all the usual podcast providers uh and really it's a podcast that's speaking to queer identifying musicians from around the world because i think that music is a really great way for for marginalized communities to really feel like they belong so it's a great space to discover new music but you know what it's an open church anybody's welcome music is a joyous thing that anyone can enjoy so come along and listen to uh, all sorts of music rap music country music pop music it's all there at in the key of q and uh, you get to hear my lovely british accent as well Awesome. <laughs> thank you brendan <laughs> yeah my pleasure and i'll be definitely linking all your stuff down in the description and sending people your way i'm definitely going to be tuning in myself because that sounds like a whole lot of fun so i think that i think that kind of wraps Bless everything you. up thank you very much yeah thank you so much for joining me thanks to all the listeners for tuning in i hope everyone learned something today and i know that i definitely learned some more about corn that i didn't know <laughs> so um awesome i think <laughs> i think that's a, a healthy stopping point so i hope that everyone enjoyed i hope to see you guys all next week and don't forget if you wait today Thank a farmer.